Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast, the very special podcast. I'm Josh Clark, Charles Bryant, Jerry Rowland, and we're here. The gang's all here. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that was hearty. Yeah, man, this is one of my favorite uh, episodes of the year. This and Halloween. Yeah. Um, typically, we're recording this one a little early, I feel like, but it's okay. Are you sure we can postpone? <laughs> no. Okay. All right, well, let's do it. Yeah. I'm excited about this. I think this is it's a not, good This way. is not July. This is it. We're right. in December. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, at least we waited until December. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a good way to, to kick off the season for us. Agreed. So we have like a whole month to just feel great. That's right. That's what this is all about, Chuck. Feeling great? Yeah, that's that's the Christmas spirit. Feeling great. Drinking hot buttered rum. Yeah, that's... Man, I'll tell you what, that put me in a mood for it. For I've never had one. I haven't either. Well, I am going to this year. I think I will be joining you. I didn't know you actually put butter in a drink. Yeah. I just thought it was called that because it was like buttery or something. Like a buttery nipple. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't have butter in it. It sure doesn't. Uh, all right, but that's coming up. Yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, no, we don't want to spoil the hot buttered rum uh, segment. Yeah, we just wanted to say welcome to the Christmas Extravaganza 2013. That's right. So, Chuck, let's kick it all off. Yeah. You ever heard of a little ditty called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Did he have a very shiny nose? Yes, he did. And if you saw it, you might even say it glows. I think that you could probably say that, and people would, they would, they'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have heard of this. Okay. Then, uh, you might not know that that's actually based on a little poem from just a few decades ago. Yeah. It's not that old. You it's know, not. so much of Christmas stuff is very, very old. Sure. But our friends over at Snopes got to the bottom of the origin story of Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Yeah. Well, we helped. We used their material, but they didn't get to the bottom of it. This is a real story that is well known. Oh, okay. Well, it's, not, it's not like they cracked the case. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Snopes. Yeah. All right. So, Rudolph, we're being coy. I know all about this story. But oh, the reason. You? I had no idea. Uh, the did reason. You really? Yeah. Huh, okay. I mean, I didn't know all the details, but I knew that it was. I knew it was not the version, and this is why we use Snopes, because. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have heard the story that it was written by uh, someone to provide comfort to his daughter mm-hmm. uh, as her mother was dying of cancer. Yeah. And then they sold it to a department store chain. And cashed in. That's right. Not true. No, some of the facts are there, like the man's wife was dying of cancer. True. And he did run it by his daughter. True. But. And there was a department store involved. Exactly. Uh, but it was just, it's just a little off. Yeah. So let's talk about this. There's a man named Robert May, and he worked for a company called Montgomery Ward, Chicago, Illinois-based department store. That's right. And every year, Montgomery Ward used to give out coloring books, Christmas-themed coloring books, to kids. Yeah, they'd buy them and just give them out as a little promo gimmick. Right. And the head of the copywriting division said, you know what? We could save a lot of money if we just made our own coloring book. Yeah. 
But how are we going to do this? What will the story be? Robert May, <laughs> you're very good at this kind of thing of of writing rhyming couplets for children. Why don't you get to work on this? That's right. And he stamped out a cigarette and threw down his last glass of scotch mm-hmm. because it was 1939 and he was at work. Right. You know? At Montgomery Ward. That's right. And he said, sure, I'll take a stab at this. And um, he kind of nicked a little bit from the tale of the ugly duckling. Yeah. And nicked a little bit <clears throat> from his own childhood because apparently he was a bit of a small, shy child. Yeah. Uh, on the outskirts, let's say, of the popular crowd. The fringe. The fringe. And um, he said, you know what? I think I can use this for a story about a little reindeer who's also on the outside and on the fringe. But what's the name of Chuck? Well, this was uh, – I think we should – Use an alliterative name is what he thought. Yeah. Because. Reindeer. Sure. So the first name has to be, begin with an R. Rollo. <laughs> no. He tried Rollo. Yeah. And they said, you know what, that's a little too carefree. Uh, then they went with Reginald. And he said, that's a little too British. Yeah. So let's just go full German. <laughs> right. With Rudolph. Yeah. In 1939. Why not? Yeah. I thought that was a little odd that he turned down a German name in favor of a, or a British name in favor of a German name. Yeah. Anyway. I'm sure our British friends find it odd, too. That's right. Uh, so then he went on and uh, wrote the story in, uh, in rhyming couplets and did read it to his four-year-old, uh, four-year-old daughter, Barbara. Who <laughs> loved it. I think it's funny that there's there were four-year-olds named Barbara <laughs> right. back in the day. Yeah. Such an old lady name. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she loved it. And his boss was like, I like it, but this whole red nose thing, uh, is this a drunk reindeer? Because, you know, the old gin blossom. I don't know if that's Christmas appropriate. Right. And and he said, I don't have a problem with it, but our customers might. And Robert May suspected that it was really the guy's reservations. Yeah. So he grabbed one of his buddies in the copywriting department, an artist, an illustrator, and took him to the zoo and said, see those deer? Make them cute and with a red nose. Yeah. I bet you his first reaction, too, was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. No one's going to think this reindeer's drunk, you jerk. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So- uh, with these drawings in hand, these illustrations of a cute little reindeer with a red nose, an abnormally red nose, um, Robert May got the sign off to go ahead with this. And he produced this little coloring booklet called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it was an instant success. Yeah, by the end of 1946, they had given out a total of six million copies. And then, of course, licensing started to uh, poke their red nose in there and say, hey, We'd love to license Rudolph because this is a great story. Kids love it. And uh, and the creator was like, that's awesome, except I don't own it because I work for a company and anything I create is owned by the company. Even though I created it, I'm not going to see any money from it. Right. That must be terrible. Yeah. And uh, so he went along his saddened way um, and then thought, you know what? Maybe I'm going to, for once in my life, stand up for myself. Yeah. I'm in deep, deep crushing debt because of the bills that I had to pay to try to keep my wife alive who died of cancer. Yeah. It's been seven years of living under this debt. It's just me and my daughter. I created Rudolph. Let me go ask. And he went to the head of Montgomery Ward, Sewell Avery, and in what proves there are Christmas miracles, Yeah, Sewell Avery said, you know what? We're going to sign the copyright over to you. And he did. Yeah, it's remarkable to think that a company would uh, revert rights to a successful 
thing created by a person. It's awesome, but I can't I can't identify with how that's possible. I think a, it was a different day and age, I guess. Right, but I think also Chuck, we look back at Rudolph and and think it's just this cultural icon. Sure, I think in 1946 or 47, um, it hadn't blown up like that yet. It was still popular, but it wasn't until after Robert May secured the copyright, yeah, that the song that we we now know and love was recorded. Yeah, written by his brother-in-law. Yeah, Johnny Marks. Just happened to know how to do that kind of thing. That's right. And Johnny Marks actually rewrote a lot of the story, a lot of the details of the story. Same with the 1965 stop motion animation. Yeah, that was uh Burl uh, the Burl Ives narrated show. It's still one of the greatest sure. Christmas specials ever. It's so great. And um they did take some liberties though. Um which I thought this is probably one of the more interesting parts of the story. The original story, the Rudolph wasn't one of Santa's reindeer. No. Not at all. He didn't live in the North Pole. He wasn't part of that whole clan. And he wasn't a kid of uh, any of the reindeer, of nope. Santa's reindeer. Had nothing to do with them. His parents weren't embarrassed by his abnormality. No. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it says in this article that he was raised in a very healthy environment. Yeah, he had a positive self attitude. Yeah, he wasn't like in the in the cartoon or in the uh, stop motion man. He's just like a sad sack because he's such a freak, right? You know, the original Rudolph was totally fine with himself. Sure. Yeah. Um. And the the other big difference is Santa discovers Rudolph by accident. Yeah, he's just delivering uh, gifts on Christmas night and spots Rudolph in his room from the red glow, and it happens to be a foggy night. So he's like, hey. I think I can use this kid to complete my rounds tonight. And he did. And when they got back, Santa had some words for Rudolph in the original poem. By you, last night's journey was actually bossed. Without you, I'm certain we'd all been lost. And the great news is, is that uh, May lived the rest of his life uh, quite successful and even went back to work at Montgomery Ward. And um, yeah, seemed like he had a like, really good life after that. He didn't have to work anymore, but he loved what he did, so he yeah. went back to work. Good for him. Yeah. And that, my friend, is the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Chuck, we mentioned Christmas miracles in the Rudolph part. Yeah. There was something that happened last year in 2012, Christmas 2012, mm-hmm. that a lot of people said was a Christmas miracle. At the very least, it was a sweet Christmas thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's a little girl named uh, Mia or Maya. I'm not sure. M-I-A. Yes. And uh, she was seven at the time. And she lived in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to call her Maya. Okay. Maya. No, we're going to call her Mia. Okay. <laughs> Mia had a dog named Marley, yeah, who was a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, which were very cute, adorable, sweet dogs. Yeah, and uh, Maya. Did I say Maya or Mia? I think you said Maya. I think I said Mia ultimately. Okay. Mia and her mom were shopping for Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. Yeah, and uh, they left Marley tied up outside of the store they were in, and when they came out, he was gone. That's right, and thanks to video surveillance. Another Christmas miracle. They saw that this jerk stole the dog. Stole the dog. Did you see the f- surveillance? Yeah, he picked it up and walked away with it. Yeah, like the, it was his. The dog was clearly not happy to be manhandled by this guy. No. 
But it's like, uh, I'm a King Charles Spaniel. What can I do? That's right. So this sounds like not a Christmas miracle, Josh, but it sounds like the worst Christmas story ever. Yeah, it was Christmas Eve that this happened. Yeah. The girl said that she couldn't sleep that night. It was just too hard, she said, which is so sad. Um, and she'd lost her best friend. Yeah. All she wanted for Christmas was her dog back, and she got it. And her two front teeth. Right. She's that kind of kid. Exactly. Uh, so she got her dog back thanks to a uh, very nice lady who that same day that the dog was stolen was walking through Union Square, walking her own two dogs, mm-hmm. when she noticed a man with a, a shivering little dog, a King Charles Spaniel, and she just thought they didn't go together. The guy was uh, on drugs, and this King Charles Spaniel looked like it was too good for him, basically. Well, and it was for sale. Yeah. On Christmas. So she inquired. Which is a little weird. She inquired after the dog, and the guy said, I've had this dog for years. I just need some money, and I hate to part with it, but yeah. well, I will if you give me some money. Liar. So the lady actually coughed up 220 bucks cash right there on the spot and bought yeah. this dog from the guy, which is pretty sweet in and of itself, but she took it a step further. That's right. She took it to the vet. Yeah. The dog was microchipped, yeah. and she got it back to their owner. Yeah, the, the vet called the family and said, we have your dog on Christmas Day. That's it's right. a Christmas miracle. And within a few minutes, uh, Mia and her mom mm-hmm. went and were reunited with Marley. Yep, and the jerk was arrested. Brandon Bacon. Yeah. That is a dog-stealing Grinch's name if I've ever heard. Right? Brandon Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is the story, unless you have anything else. No. Of the returned King Charles Spaniel. On Christmas. Of 2012. Right. Okay, dude. Now we're uh, to an interesting part of the show where we're going to talk about uh, modern-day mall Santas. I grew up with what I think was the best mall Santa of all time. Oh, yeah? That's a pretty weighty statement. The dude at North Cab Mall in the 1970s, I can't remember his name, um, was the most realistic-looking Santa I've ever seen. Yeah. He was amazing. He was my Santa. And I will try and find some photos to post when we release this of this dude. Uh, he was great. I didn't have a Santa. He's departed now. But he really were, are he, you were you like friends with this guy's family or something? No, but they did like a big article on him when he died because he was like, oh, he was that good, huh? Yeah, he was known as like the best Santa, uh, the best fake Santa in all the land. Yeah, <laughs> and he he really he looked the part. I mean, really, really looked like Santa, not creepy, all natural, with the beard and hair. Like there was no fake fakery going on. That is nice. Yeah, he was really really great, and uh, that's a job. And you can make some decent money doing it. You certainly can. And you can also cough up a little money trying to get there. Yeah, depending on uh, how much you want to create the illusion that you are Santa himself, you're going to have to spend some dough. Uh, a Santa suit, a good one, is going to run you about two grand. The boots themselves are going to be about 800 bucks. Yeah. Leather gloves, the white ones, 300 bucks. <laughs> uh, don't think that hat is free. White leather gloves. Wait, what Santa have you ever seen that wears leather gloves? That's creepy. <laughs> really? You've never seen Santa wearing supple white calfskin <laughs> gloves? Oh, man. They wear like the little white cotton gloves. Yeah, that's what I've seen, too. And that, think, that's mainly to prevent germs, I think, too. Which I didn't know. And it's also to make your hands very visible at all times, from what I understand. 
Oh, really? Yeah, it's a liability. Oh. Yeah. Gotcha. Where's Santa's hand? It's right here. See? Yeah. Interesting. The white really stands out against the red. Yeah. I never thought about that. I didn't think about it either. I read it elsewhere. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. So you, you've laid down some serious cash. If you want a, a really good theatrical beard, let's say you, you like that white one in the corner made out of uh, yak hair. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you want a good Santa <laughs> beard, you have to go to the yaks. It's going to be about a grand to $12,000. Or maybe you can grow your own big beard. It's still going to cost you a little money to keep it like perfectly white. Yes. You don't want to see any red in there. No. No salt and pepper. No. You want to have, have a strictly white beard, and that'll cost you a little bit of money, too. Yeah. 600 bucks. I mean, think about it. It's like hair coloring, right? And sure. you want to go to a good colorist. White's probably the hardest thing to color hair. Yeah. And this is all, if you if you just want one of each of these things, you're going to be spending that money. But as a Santa, you need backup wardrobe. Some of these guys have like five or six of these outfits. Yeah. Apparently, according to a poll by the Kringle Group, which is basically a trade industry for Santas. Sure. Um, the the 20% of mall Santas have five or six whole suits tucked away in case of emergency. Yeah, so that's like upwards of 20 grand or more yeah. in, in investment to be a Santa. And they said in the same poll that most Santas have two, at least. At least two, sure. Yeah. Because, you know, you get peed on at noon, you got to go change so you can get peed on again at three. Yeah. <laughs> If the Kringle Group does anything, they conduct polls of Santa, and they found that um, a third, a third of mall Santas have had a child pee on their lap. I would think that happens once a year, at least. Sure. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. I was surprised. It seemed a little low to me, too. I thought so. But it's not just pee. Like, there's all sorts of ways that kids spread their germs. Yes. Yeah, uh, the Kringle Group said 75% of Santas get sneezed on at least once, and 44% are sneezed on or coughed on uh, up to 15 times a day. 15. And I'll bet that's an accurate amount, too, because I'll bet you count every time. Well, it's number 14 Yeah. today. Well, and there's no parent that the kid is, like, really sick. They're like, well, we just won't do that this year. The parent's like, nope. Right. We're going. Yeah. Happy or not. Get out of bed. Uh, the kid also uh, may not only pee on you, cough on you, sneeze on you, he may scream in terror on you. And we actually have a pretty great slideshow yeah. on our website called 23 Photos of Terrified Little Kids on Santa Claus's Lap. Yeah. If you go to stuffyoushouldknow.com. Yeah, I've got there. one I need to add to that. Okay. I, need, I need to find it at my mom's house and scan it. But there is one verified picture of me, classic case, screaming bloody murder on Santa's lap. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see that. It's good. Uh, you might also, if you want to be a Santa, you might want to go to Santa school. Um, there are many, not many, there are a handful, <laughs> but, um, the Charles W. Howard school, uh, in Al- Albion, New York opened it, in 1937 and it is the Harvard of Santa schools. It was opened by the guy who played Santa in the Macy's parade for years and years and years, Charles Howard. Yeah. Um, and he did open it in Albion, but it, it was, um, later on taken over. And moved to Midland, Michigan, which is where it is now. Oh, yeah. And it is the most adorable thing you've ever seen in your life. Is it? It really is. Okay. <laughs> like the the houses on campus. It's like Santa Village? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of the Santas there refer to one another as like Santa Chuck and Santa Josh. And, yeah. Um, <clears throat> they all have like personalized vanity plates like Ho Ho One and um, sure. things like that. Uh, See the gloves? 
<laughs> they also um, learn quite a bit of stuff, like how does like Christmas terms in sign language. Yeah, the history of Christmas, just so you can be acquainted with like the real story. History of Santa Claus. Sure. History of Saint Nick. Apparently, kids ask Santa how old he is a lot, and Saint Nick was born seventeen hundred years ago. So you got to be quick on your feet. Did they say that? I guess some of them do. Others um, are asked whether reindeer are boys or girls. That's something kids always want to know. Is that a boy or a girl? Right. Uh, and it turns out the reindeer should all be girls because only female reindeer have antlers oh, yeah. around Christmas time. Yeah. And Santa has to describe that to the children. Yes. And Santa learns that at the Charles W. Howard Santa Claus School in Midland, Michigan. Awesome. I, I saw a story. I, I'm going to have to dig that up for next year about these two warring Santa. Uh, God, where was that? It was two Santas, basically, that were, I think, vying for the presidency of that uh, that group you were talking about. The Kringle group? Yeah, and I think it got really ugly. That's terrible. Um, yeah, it was a great story, though. I read it a few years ago. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that and save it for next year. Yeah. Uh, so what does this all mean in terms of uh, return on your investment? ROI, as I like to say here. That's what Santa cares about. Yeah, like, can you get rich playing Santa? Uh, oh, are you asking me? Yeah. I will answer then. No. But you can make a decent enough living, especially if you're just working for two or three months, four months these days, with the Christmas season starting earlier and earlier and earlier. Yeah. But just for this amount of time that you're kind of putting into it, you can make some Santas make up to eighty grand. More, uh, more make somewhere between eight grand and twelve, twenty, fifty grand. Yeah, and, and in your bigger cities, at your nicer malls, you're obviously going to find your better Santas that make the top dollar. Uh, if you Live out in the middle of Kansas, and you have a hayseed mall. <laughs> you might have kind of a crappy-looking Santa that makes like twenty bucks an hour. Yeah, but hey, you got your Santa, and good for you. They all need to be supported and peed on with equal uh, vigor. We've now reached the point where we talk about hot buttered rum. Yeah. Which is pretty exciting. It is. Uh, and it's old as the hills. It is as old as the hills. And this is um, this is something that taught me a lot about our history in this country, because I did not know that the United States was a huge rum producer back in the day. Yeah, up to Prohibition. Yep. Um, there's something called Medford rum, which was the pride of New yeah, England. Sure. Uh, that... There's a there's a distiller that's like reaching the end of the distillation process as we speak. Yeah, I saw that. Who's about to release some Medford rum? Yeah, for the first time in a while, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like defunct, and it's been defunct basically been since the since prohibition. Yeah. Um, but at one time it was basically the the heart and soul of the colonial economy, and some people make the case that were it not for Medford rum. Uh, the colonists might not have had enough dough to fund the revolution. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't know either. If you, uh, back in the day, if you went north of New Jersey and New York, that was like the house drink. You rum. went to a pub and it was rum. Yeah. And it was dark and kind of funky, apparently. The rum was, not the, the taverns. No. Well, they were probably dark and funky, too. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the rum was, uh, well, we'll get to that. But it was definitely dark rum. Yeah, we get ahead of ourselves here. Chuck, first let's talk about the difference between a toddy and a sling. 
one's hot and one's cold. Pretty much. Yeah. When you call your drink a hot toddy, you're using um, a redundant term. Yeah. Toddy's hot. Yeah. But you're not even really describing it well when you're talking about whiskey, uh, a little sugar, lemon, and bourbon. That's maybe a bourbon toddy. I mean, there's all kinds of toddies. But a, yeah, and hot buttered rum is a kind of toddy. Mm -hmm. A toddy is uh, the predecessor to the cocktail, and basically it's booze, water, and sugar. And if it's hot, it's a toddy. If it's cold, it's a sling. Like a Singapore sling. Exactly. Let's say. Uh, So hot buttered rum is, in fact, a toddy. And it's obviously was a hit back then and still today because it was cold. And, And back then in New England... You know, you didn't have the insulation we have today, and you would you would want something to warm the belly, something maybe make you a little sleepy, mm-hmm. so you could fall asleep. And so, what better to include in that toddy than a little fat, a little bit of butter? Yeah, they had plenty of cows, so they're like, "Hey, we got these churns, we got this butter laying around. It's really good stuff. We got a bunch of rum, got a bunch of tons of rum, and we have these hot searing pokers in the fire." Which I did not know about until this. That's pretty awesome. And I, I'd love to make one like that. Yeah. You know, the original way. Oh, yeah. Which we'll get to in a second. But they said, let's throw all these in a, in a glass and drink it. And it turns out it's delicious and buttery and puts you to sleep with a smile on your face. <laughs> right. You know? They have no idea who the first person was to put all of it together. But by the mid-18th century, it was apparently all over New England. Sure. It was pretty much everywhere in the colonies. George Washington loved this stuff. Yeah. And um, over time, people have decided to kind of make it a little more frou-frou than the original version. Sure. So there's there's a very widespread hot buttered rum um, recipe that includes basically like a spiced sweet batter where yeah. you whip butter yeah. together with nutmeg, cinnamon, all that stuff, mm-hmm. and some sugar, and you replace the butter with that. Um, apparently, David Wondrich, who's a cocktail historian over at Esquire magazine, um, says that if you do something like that in parts of Maine, you'll be labeled a communist. So he's anti-batter. Yes. He is a straight-up uh, purist. Right. Okay. But we're going to tell you how to make these things. But first, we should talk about the ingredients. Yeah. You want to use unsalted butter. That's a big one. And you want to use good butter, quality butter, not margarine or some shed spread. <laughs> right. You want to use like real butter, real nice unsalted butter. Yeah. And you want to, the more milk fat, the better. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a guy who wrote the uh, Gun Club drink book. His name is Charles Brown. And he suggested that in hot buttered rum, the butter was there merely to lubricate the mustache. That's pretty funny. The author of the article we read said, no, that's not the case. The butter is an integral part of this drink. So use the as the best butter you can put your hands on. Yeah, it kind of softens the, the corners, the rough edges of this rum, apparently. Yeah. Uh, some people include uh, cider, an apple cider in their drink, which can be done, but... The purists point out, that's just another drink altogether. Yeah. Don't call it a hot buttered rum. No. It's something else. It's a hot cider rum. Right. With butter. <laughs> so if you are a purist and you want to make an original OG enjoyed by George Washington hot buttered rum, how do you make it? Well, you want to get dark rum. Yeah, that's the, that is the key. 
Yeah. Good butter is very important, but rum is really important. And you were saying that it was a little dark, yeah. a little funky back in the day. And luckily, people are still making those kinds of rum today. You want some brown rum. Yeah, apparently uh, he says the uh, Demerara rums from Guyana mm-hmm. are really a nice way to go. They sure are. Have you ever had those? Oh, yeah. Is it good? Yes. I'm not a big rum uh, guy. Uh, I had a bad experience with it uh, about 18 years ago. Oh, and you never recovered, huh? I haven't really gone near it since. Um, There's a, I would, though, for, you know, it's been long enough. The the, the kinds of rum that this guy's talking about, um, like anything from Guyana, is like you could drink it neat. It's yeah. that good, you know? Yeah. I used to, you know, I worked at Mexicali Grill in college. Mm-hmm. And um, not recommending this, people, because it's not right to drink on the job. <laughs> but we all drank on the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. We drank uh, rum and Cokes, and uh, that was... Where I drank a lot of my rum. You went one toke over the line there. No, we were we were good. We we, we it was a college when you work at a college bar. You can be drinking while you right. But what was working. your what was your bad experience then? I don't know. It wasn't from that. That was from some oh, gotcha. Myers rum uh, in New Jersey. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, Myers will work. It's a dark rum. Yeah. It you works. don't have to spend fifty <laughs> bucks on rum. No. Um. But if you want to, hot, hot buttered rum isn't necessarily something you're drinking every night. No. So maybe. This year, spring for some decent rum. You'll have it around for a while. It doesn't really go bad. All right. So what's the recipe? The recipe is as follows, Chuck. You want two ounces of good rum, Mm -hmm. dark rum. You want three to four ounces of hot water, one teaspoon of raw sugar. You know that uh, sugar in the raw stuff? Yeah. That's Demerara. Oh, okay. Um, And then you want some really good unsalted butter, softened. Yeah. Then what do you do? Um, well, there's a couple of ways. If you want to go super old school, you're going to, uh, heat up your mug a little bit with some hot water. Just go ahead and get the mug nice and chilled right. or, uh, nice and warm. Nice and chilled. You don't want it chilled. Uh, you're going to add your rum, sugar, and water and, um, about two tablespoons of that butter. That's a lot of butter. Yeah. And, uh, you want to take a hot poker from the fire and plunge it into your mixture until it starts bubbling. Yeah. Be very careful when doing this. Yeah, I and don't use your like fire poker because it's covered in ash. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand it. Like, what poker are you going to use? Well, your your rum poker. Like, right. You would have something strictly for this, just for think. rum. Yeah, but let's get real. That's dangerous. Yeah, this is the modern days. So, if you want to make one that's slightly less colonial, meaning it doesn't use a red hot poker to um, heat everything. Yeah, get your tea kettle on. Pretty much. Yeah. You again, you warm like a heat proof mug with some water. Hot water. Um, and then uh, you dump that out and you pour an ounce of water and some sugar and you stir it to dissolve. Yeah, boiling water. Right. Sure. After that, you add the rum, the rest of the water, and uh, that butter, two tablespoons. Man. That's a lot of butter. I know. We can't wait to try this. And on both of them, uh, you want to you grate some fresh nutmeg on top. Yeah. And there's your hot buttered rum. If you want to be a communist in in Maine and make your batter, uh, you make basically you make your spice, butter, sugar, batter, and that's sort of like just your base, and you can scoop that out and add it to each drink. Right, you, it stands in for the butter. Yeah, it's about uh, let's say if you want to make eight servings, cup of brown sugar. <laughs> Man, that's a lot. Eight servings? One? Are you sure, there's not a zero missing. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, one four ounce stick of unsalted butter, softened. One teaspoon of ground cinnamon. One and a half teaspoons of ground nutmeg. 
and one quarter teaspoon of clove. Mix that all together in a mixing bowl, and supposedly that is eight servings of your batter. But um, sounds like it go could go a little further. <laughs> yeah, that'll keep you up. Yeah, maybe. Uh, some people I've seen use ice cream in their batter. Oh yeah. Yeah, which is I don't know. Even I'm like that's too far. Some might say two tablespoons of butter in a drink is too far. Some may, and I think that's the point. This holiday season, when you're enjoying a hot buttered rum, if you're ages 21 or older, mm-hmm. um, you should adjust it however you like and make it your own Agreed. so that it gives you a happy holiday season. Awesome. Okay, buddy. It's time to round out the Christmas episode mm-hmm. with uh, a reading. And we did this. Last year, what, what did we do? The, the shoemaker or something? Little kids in the shoes? We did some story about some magical shoes that were made overnight or something. Oh, about <laughs> clothing elves. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, very, it's a classic Christmas story, as is The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Who is one of my favorite authors of all time. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He makes a great candy bar, too. <laughs> he does. Uh, so now, folks... Merry Christmas 2013, a reading from Josh and Chuck, The Gift of the Magi. $1.87, that was all, and 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with a silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl, so Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at eight dollars per week did not exactly beggar description but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. Got to look out for those guys. <laughs> in the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go and an electric button for which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat, above he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with the result. $20 a week doesn't go too far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim, her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor being owed by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and agile person may, by observing 
his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtained a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there are two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window someday to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon bid the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophronie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophronie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours trip by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of the chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got her curling irons out and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was back on the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard a step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. She cut her hair off, right, to make money to buy this gift. Yeah. Okay. Got $20 for it. So she looks like Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables. Yes. 
All right. But with curly hair. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22 and about to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della and there was an expression in them that she could not read and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror. (laughs) nor any of these sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with a peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried. Don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say, Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact, yet even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked around the room curiously. You say your hair is gone? He said with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package... You may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoiseshell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on you. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. 
they invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Oh, all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. What did you think of that? I think it was one of the great ir- ironic stories of all time. Well, that's O'Henry. He's the master of the ironic twist. Yeah, and it's not lame at all. No. He says lame late in the end, but that's one of those words. It's a little different now. He's self-deprecating. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, yeah, man. How about that? Combs, he sold the watch. Yeah. But they got the chops. On yeah, the, the stove. chops. <laughs> I, when I was reading that, I was like, chops sound pretty good. Yeah, it sounds real good. Uh, yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing else. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Thanks, Christmas. Uh, for another great year, buddy. And Jerry? Yeah. Merry Christmas, Chuck. Merry Christmas, Jerry. Jerry says Merry Christmas, too. And to all a good night? To all a good night. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. 